Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, my name is Pam and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I'd like to welcome everyone to the Gibson Energy Q4 2021 Earnings Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question during this time, simply press star then the number 1 on your telephone keypad. If you'd like to withdraw your question, please press star then the number 2. Thank you. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Mark Hitzchest, Vice President, Strategies, Planning, and Investor Relations. Mr. Hitzchest, you may begin your conference. Thank you, Operator. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on this conference call discussing our fourth quarter and full year 2021 operational and financial results. On the call this morning from Gibson Energy are Steve Spaulding, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Sean Brown, Chief Financial Officer. Listeners are reminded that today's call refers to non-GAAP measures and forward-looking information. Descriptions and qualifications of such measures and information are set out in our continuous disclosure documents available on CDAR. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Steve. Thanks, Mark, and good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm pleased to say we delivered another solid quarter. Keeping what we see is a strong year, especially from our infrastructure segment. As such, we are in position to continue a consistent annual dividend growth. With the increase this year of two cents per share per quarter to 37 cents per quarter per share or an annual amount of $1.48 per share. As important, we saw the restart of commercial discussions and a pause brought on by the onset of COVID, which led to the sanctions of several new projects during the year and the development of projects we expect to sanction in 2022. Also, we made some big strides in advancing ESG and sustainability at Gibson. Looking briefly at our financial results, Infrastructure adjusted EBITDA of $436 million for the year is a very strong result. That's $63 million, or 17% increase over 2020. Also notable is if you look at the infrastructure growth over the past five years, you see a figure of the same amount of 17% which truly reflects our ability to deploy capital in what we think are the highest quality projects in our sector. On the marketing side, adjusted EBITDA of 43 million was reflective of a challenging environment. We continue to see marketing as an opportunity-driven business, but we won't stretch or take additional risks just to hit a number. Relative to 2020, our adjusted EBITDA stayed flat. But the decrease in marketing numbers was offset by higher quality, long-term cash flows from infrastructure. In fact, infrastructure represents now 91% of our adjusted EBITDA. Despite that challenging marketing environment, our payout ratio of 70% remains near the bottom of our target range of 70 to 80%. And leverage of 3.2 times is within our three to 3.5 times target range. Given our solid financial position, we also wanna make sure we continue to adhere to our capital allocation philosophy. Our priority remains infrastructure growth capital focused on high quality cash flows and targeting that five to seven times build multiple. At the same time, we also recognize that many investors 
would also like to see increased return on capital from the sector as a whole. As I mentioned, we increased our dividend more than any of the past years. And Sean will discuss a stock buyback strategy. On the operational front during the year, we completed the construction of the DRU on schedule and within our initial capital range. ConocoPhillips has now been moving neat bitchmen to the U.S. Gulf Coast for roughly six months now. And they're seeing a strong market develop for their product. Also, refinery customers are seeing meaningful improvement in refinery runs versus Dilbit. All of which further demonstrates the DRU competes, if not beats, pipelines on a head-to-head -head basis, which is helping us advance discussions for additional phases. On the tankage front, we were very pleased to announce the sanction of a new tank in Edmonton during the third quarter. With this tank, we welcome a new investment-grade customer to our Edmonton terminal. And we continue to be in discussions with potential Edmonton customers, including TMX shippers. We believe Gibson is well-positioned to support shippers on TMX, optimize their crude netbacks, and meet the stream requirements. At the Edmonton terminal, one of the commercial achievements of 2021 was the signing of an MSA with Suncor, our principal customer at the terminal. The agreement simplified several contracts into one contract and, and extended their aggregate term. As part of the agreement, we announced the sanction of a biofuels blending project. It was a roughly equivalent to one, one and a half tanks in terms of capital and is ESG positive and aligned with energy transition. One of the things I really like is that 25-year term. The execution of the agreement and the sanctioning of the biofuels project demonstrates the long-term need of Edmonton Terminal by one of the most prominent integrated producers in Canadian energy. We believe we'll continue to build out additional infrastructure to support their needs in energy transition fuels over the coming years. We're dedicated to present energy transition infrastructure opportunities. We put together an energy transition team to identify and develop opportunities in this space. Most notable is the potential renewable diesel facility that we continue to advance. If we're successful, we expect to generate very attractive risk-adjusted returns for our shareholders and likely push us back to that $300 million in growth capital per year we were at prior to COVID. This is a very interesting opportunity. There's still a lot of work to be done. We continue to look for M&A opportunities that fit our strategy and provide consistent and quality cash flow. Tough to find that match where it fits your strategy, your cash flow quality, and evaluation with a willing seller. Shifting to ESG, this is another part of our business that we meaningfully advanced in 2021. We set on each of the E, S, and G fronts with deliverables in 2025 and 2030 as we believe it is important that we have a credible near-term targets to drive change today. And as part of that, 35% of our short-term compensation is tied to ESG and safety metrics. We were the first public energy company in North America to fully transition its principal syndicated revolving credit facility to a sustainability-linked facility. On the east side, in terms of the highlights, we are targeting reducing our overall emissions intensity by 20% and eliminating our scope to emissions by 2030. We've made a net zero commitment by 2050. A key focus for us is setting each of our targets 
with a credible path to get there. On the S and G front, we've made some real progress over the past 12 months. We're well on our way with over 45% of our vice presidents and up being women or ethnic representation. Our target is for women to comprise at least 43% of the overall workforce by 2030. We continue our focus on communities in which we operate. We seek to give at least $5 million in community initiatives through 2025, and at least a million dollars per year, which is really pretty good when you think of our relative size. I'm most proud of our employees, how they're contributing and participating in community investments. You know, we had over 95% participation by our employees. That's really outstanding. On the safety front, we achieved a TRIP score in 2021 of 0.43, which is the lowest score in our company's history. and puts Gibson in the top quartile of our U.S. and Canadian industrial peers. Given all these efforts, we're very pleased that our that our work was recognized by third-party rating agencies, which provided external confirmation that we're meeting our overall goal of being an ESG leader in our sector. For example, towards the end of the year, MSCI upgraded our rating to AAA. This is their highest rating in our sector, and we are the only company in North America to receive this leadership rating. We were also awarded the bronze class distinction in S&P Global 2022 Sustainability Yearbook, where only four other companies globally received this medal of distinction within the oil and gas storage and transportation industry. We believe we have well positioned Gibson as a great fit for the ESG-minded investor. We have the lowest carbon intensity among our peers, and the steps we've been taking have earned us very strong ratings from the major agencies. Again, we feel we've had another strong quarter, contributing to a good year, and remain very well positioned going forward. Our infrastructure business remains strong, and our run rate increasingly notable from the startup of the DRU. We will continue to have growth opportunities around our traditional assets. I'm excited about the new growth opportunities around the DRU and then in the energy transition space, and potentially some M&A opportunities that fit us. It's nice to be recognized as one of the top ESG companies in our space. I'll now pass it over to Sean, who will walk us through our financial results in more detail. Sean? Thanks, Steve. As Steve mentioned, another solid quarter that helped cap a strong year, especially for our infrastructure segment. Very much a year that proved we don't rely on our variable cash flows to move our business forward, especially with leverage in the bottom half of our target range and our pay it ratio right at the bottom of our 70 to 80% target range. For the fourth quarter, infrastructure adjusted EBITDA of $106 million was slightly ahead of our expectations when taking into account that we are at $104 million in the third quarter with what was pretty close to a full quarter contribution from the DRU. Both the Hardesty and Edmonton terminals were up very slightly from the third quarter as a result of increased throughput volumes. The U.S. business was also up slightly as we continue to see increased throughputs on both our gathering systems and the Gibson Wink Terminal. Partially offsetting these factors was Moose Jaw, where we are slightly lower in the fourth quarter than in the third quarter due to some maintenance work and higher utility costs. For the full year, infrastructure adjusted EBITDA was $436 million, a $63 million or 17% increase from 2020. That was very much above the internal budget that we set at the start of the year 
and was driven by outperformance at both the Hardesty and Edmonton terminals. While there were some one-time items at both Hardesty and Edmonton, on a net basis, those would account for less than half of the outperformance versus our budget outlook. Relative to 2020, the main drivers of the $63 million increase would have included a full-year contribution from the three tanks we placed into service in the fourth quarter of 2020 at Hardesty, the outperformance of our expectations for Hardesty and Edmonton due to higher throughput revenues and slightly lower operating costs, the partial contribution from the DRU this year, and the net benefit of the one-time items, though that would be less than a third of the increase year over year. And the marketing segment, adjusted EBITDA in the fourth quarter of $6 million was within our outlook range. As we spoke to on the third quarter call, this fourth quarter was impacted by unrealized losses on financial instruments that needed to be realized. And while there are some smaller opportunities we are able to realize around volatility from egress outages, the asphalt market for refined products was weak, as expected, though tops and drilling fluids were not as strong as anticipated. For the full year 2021, marketing adjusted EBITDA was $43 million. That is a decrease of $61 million from the $104 million earned in 2020. Putting that difference into context, though, in the second quarter of 2020, when there was significant volatility in the crude market with the onset of COVID, marketing made $64 million in just that one quarter. This also highlights both how marketing is an opportunity-driven business and that we haven't realized any outsized opportunities for six quarters in a row. We can't predict when that quarter will come, but as you can see, it makes a big difference. In terms of our outlook for marketing, we would expect Q1 to come in at between 15 and $20 million in adjusted EBITDA, which is somewhat in line with where Q4 came in before the impact of financial instruments. Finishing up the discussion of the results, let me quickly work down to distributable cash flow for the fourth quarter, relative to the third quarter of this year. Interest and replacement capital were in line and current income tax expense was slightly lower. Lease payments were $2 million lower, though this was offset by other items, including non-cash adjustments for equity accounted items. For the full year 2021, distributable cash flow of $290 million, $291 million, was $8 million lower than the $299 million earned in 2020, despite the same adjusted EBITDA in both years. In terms of key drivers, lease payments were $8 million lower in 2021, as we continued to reduce our rail car fleet and had reduced rates on cars we renewed. Income tax was $5 million higher, reflecting lower one-time offsets that were available. Other items decreased a net $16 million, where in the first quarter of 2020, we had an outsized positive impact of $14 million, largely from adjustments from our equity investment and foreign exchange changes. And on a trailing 12-month basis, for the second consecutive quarter, both adjusted EBITDA and distributable cash flow increased relative to the prior quarter, as we again posted a stronger quarter in both the infrastructure and marketing segments, then we rolled off. As a result, our payout ratio decreased to 70%, which is the bottom end of our 70 to 80% target range. Our debt to adjusted EBITDA remained flat at 3.2 times, which is in the bottom half of our three to three and a half times target. On an infrastructure only basis, our leverage would be 3.6 times and our payout ratio would be approximately 66%, where we seek to be below four times and 100% respectively under our financial governing principles. And it was very much those metrics, in addition to the 17% five-year CAGR and infrastructure growth Steve, Steve spoke to earlier that gave our board the confidence to increase the dividend by two cents per share per quarter or 6% to 37 cents per share per quarter on an, or an annual rate of $1.48 per share. <clears throat> and speaking further to our financial position, we continue to maintain a fully funded position for all our capital with ample cushion for additional projects. 
Between our credit facilities and cash on hand, we had over $650 million of available liquidity as at December 31st. Given that level of liquidity and our strong leverage metrics, especially on an infrastructure-only basis, we are very much positioned to also consider returning capital shareholders via our buyback in 2022. We don't seek to be formulaic or prescriptive in terms of timing or size of potential buybacks. However, we fully appreciate that the market will likely judge companies on execution rather than intention. In summary, a solid quarter and a very strong year. Results from the infrastructure segment were strong to the point where this offset the challenging environment faced by the marketing segment. From a financial perspective, we remain in a very strong position, being within both our leverage and payout target ranges, remaining fully funded with ample cushion and with significant available liquidity. And we continue to be of the view that our business offers a strong total return proposition to investors with visibility to continued growth in our high quality infrastructure cash flows, an attractive dividend that we've now grown for three straight years and with the potential for buybacks in the future all while maintaining a very strong balance sheet and financial position. At this point, I will turn the call over to the operator to open it up for questions. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request and your questions will be polled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star followed by two. And if you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. Your first question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, first question, just on discussions on tankage, has the slippage in the Trans Mountain date altered any conversations there, or is the expectation that you're still going to have to get contracts signed this year for uh, any tankage to meet Trans Mountain? Uh, thank you for the, the question, Rob. Uh, Steve. Um, I would say it has pushed it back a little bit as far as just the pure urgency. Um, the delay, right? Um, but it does it does actually help us on the DRU. You know, back was it several years ago when the decision around um, Trans Mountain was being made by the government. You know, we had said that we win either way. Uh, one way, you know, the the way we one way we build more tanks. The other way, it really adds to our DRU um, competitive advantage. All right, thanks for that. And then just maybe shifting over, um, you know, M&A got a little bit more commentary in your prepared remarks there. You know, as you're taking a look at the landscape, what are what are the attributes that you're looking for in an M&A target? Is this more asset-based? Is this more platform-based? Uh, could we see a new geography? Can you just kind of walk us through what you're looking for in a, in a potential investment? Number, the number one thing that we would look at is something that looks a lot like us. Right, so something in our space that we're good at, uh, but we're not opposed to a new platform. It's not probably our highest priority, but uh, really a platform of, you know, the oil infrastructure business and something that we are experts at. And geographies. 
Uh, you know, we're probably going to stay in Canada. It's probably our main focus. You know, there may be some U.S. assets that fit us, but uh, I think our main focus will be in Canada. Appreciate the color. Thank you. Your next question comes from Jeremy Tanet with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Jeremy. Um, maybe rounding out that last line of questions there, just thinking about the other way, is there any set of circumstances where uh, Gibson might be a seller if uh, the, val the market doesn't realize the right valuation? Just kind of curious in general your, your thoughts on that. We've seen some other activity in Canada in, in the recent past here. Yeah, I don't think we're looking to sell any assets. Uh, within Canada uh, or the U.S., uh, so that's not really in our strategy right now. We, you know, as we cleaned the business up in 2018 and 2019, so we're not looking to really sell any assets, Jeremy. Or, or even the company as a whole. I guess if growth uh, opportunities are proved less than expected. You know, um, we're here to execute our strategy. We, we're pretty excited about the DRU and the renewable diesel. We think that's going to give us the new platform for growth. You know, I think Sean and I and, and uh, our chairman have always said that, you know, um, you know, we're here to do what's best for the shareholders. So, um, you know, we're not an entrenched management team and we want to do what's best for the shareholders. Jeremy. Got it. That that makes sense. That's helpful there. And then maybe pivoting uh, to a smaller part of the business and recognize the Permian is is a smaller portion here. But just wondering, any updated thoughts you could provide around uh, that part of your footprint? You know, especially West Texas, uh, drilling activities is really picked up. And wondering what that means in in your neck of the woods. Well, I mean, yeah, we we're starting to see life there. Uh, you know, Sean talked about. You know, we. We increased earnings year on year, and the budget's definitely up. Um, one of the wells that uh, one of the one of our area dedications, uh, they recently uh, completed a three well pad coming in at 4,000 barrels a day. It's been flowing that for four months, so that's a good sign. Um, and we um, we expect drilling to pick up and earnings to continue to grow there, Chairman. Got it. But as uh, as it attracts capital, I guess no no change on that front. You know, I think we used to say twenty five to fifty, and I think last year we said it was going to be uh, kind of uh, south of twenty five, and I would I would I would say we're, we'll we'll continue to be probably below twenty five million in, in the basin for the near future. Got it. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Your next question comes from Robert Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Great morning. Um, if I could start with, with capital allocation, and Sean, I know you said you didn't want to be formulaic uh, around the buyback parameters, but if you think about capital allocation, you've delivered um, you know, the, the larger dividend increase and set that baseline, but on share buybacks, what are the key considerations around this? Is it Share price driven is it the availability of cash flow from the marketing that that we're going to need to see, or is it capex? And if it's capex, is there then a timing bias to the second half of the year? Yeah, th thanks, Robert. A, a good question. I mean, I, I think you touched upon a lot of parts of our capital allocation philosophy there. Uh, you know, I mean, first and foremost, we uh, fundamentally uh, are going to remain fully funded, so we're going to allocate growth capital. To the extent that you know it's at that typical investment parameters we have, you know the extent that we've excess cash flow or we're delivering on it, you know we have always said that we buy annual dividend increases, and that's what you saw with the six percent increase this year. You know that was on the back of you know a seventeen percent CAGR in infrastructure growth capital over the past five years, and you know dividend hadn't grown at that same amount. With respect to buybacks, and you touched upon it exactly, and it does get to the timing somewhat, you know, really the two factors where, uh, you know, we, we had indicated as part of our capital allocation philosophy we would think about buybacks was if we see, you know, a significant recovery in marketing and or we see a capital that's somewhat below our fully funded number. And so, 
You know, we, we haven't seen that recovery in marketing, but we have seen, you know, a capital number, certainly with that $150 million target this year, that would be below our fully funded number. And that's where, you know, we've now indicated an intention to execute on buybacks this year. Uh, you know, the formulaic part is probably as much uh, about the quantum as, you know, as opposed to the timing. So what I would say is that we do have an intention to do buybacks this year. Uh, it's not dependent necessarily on timing of capital. If you think of the total quantum of buybacks, that could be somewhat dependent. As we move through the year, if we start to sanction some of these larger projects and see touch on them, you know, thinking of, you know, additional phase of the DRU and or uh, the renewable diesel project, you know, that could have an impact on the quantum, but, but not necessarily the timing as we do have an intention to buy back throughout the year. And, and then just as a point of reference from a quantum as a whole, um, you know, we aren't intending to be formulaic, but as well as we think about, you know, our intention right now, and we think about it relative to some of the at least publicly stated programs of our peers, we do think it'll be somewhat notable. So not, not pure transparency, but hopefully that answers your question. No, I appreciate that, John. Um, if I can just ask about the marketing, you, you've given us the first quarter guidance. Is there anything uh, unusual that you see in the first quarter, or is, or is this kind of this, you know, relatively narrow spreads, lower end of, of your long-term range, and that's what, you know, at least as it stands right here right now, what the rest of the year might look like, or is there, or is there something kind of embedded in Q1 that's either helping or hurting the quarter? So I think some of the volatility in December um, actually carried over and helped us in the first quarter, uh, Robert. Um, as far as, you know, what the rest of the year brings, it's always very difficult to find and predict what the, what the year will bring. So, you know, we, we don't, we can't call the market. Okay. But it's, it sounds like Q1 though is, has been aided by just that carryover in, in Q4 and absence, you know, any changes in the market, the subsequent quarters of the year, probably a little bit, a uh, little bit lower than what your guy needed for Q1. Well, as you, I think we've always said, you know, we've, we've the moose jaw margins because of our asphalt business, um, you know, we, we don't make the money in the, in the fourth and the first quarter, you know, because the asphalt demand drops. And so we store that, we store that product. And so that really generally weakens our fourth and first quarters. Uh, so, you know, we think, you know, that, that, but, but we have stronger, Moose Shaw has stronger second and third quarters. So that does offset that. We believe Robert. Okay. Okay. That's great. Thank you. Your next question comes from Matt Taylor with Tudor Pickering Holt & Co. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my question here, guys. I wanted to hit the renewable diesel project, if I may. Can you outline what you need to see there, maybe on uh, both from a federal and uh, provincial um, basis from the regulators? And then if you'd be willing to bring on other partners like indigenous groups or maybe other capital providers? So, um, yeah, we've definitely been working with local, you know, the pr provincial governments and with federal for assistance and funding of the project. Um, and we have seen some of those come through for us already. Um, and I would say we're definitely looking for partners in this project. And so I would say that's pr probably where the bolt, you know, the where our main focus is right now is uh, developing those partnerships. Thanks, Steve. Should, should the market be looking for LCFS manners that, that the federal government rolls out or, or even Saskatchewan, or, or what's the, the gating factors that, that, that we should be looking at in terms of getting capital from regulators or just in terms of what environment is constructive for continuing to push the project along? You know, right now, you know, federal would obviously give a big boost, you know, with new federal uh, uh, fuel standards. But currently, you know, just with the BC standards alone, uh, the, the project looks good. 
Okay, thanks for that, Steve. And then one more, if I may, talking about uh, another DRU expansion. Last time you had been referencing this, it was sometime in the first half you're expecting. Are you, are you still targeting that time frame, given what you've seen so far with the DRU now been in operation for a couple of months, or or, or, or what's the, the status of, of commercial discussions? Well, they're definitely ongoing, but we're going to really ramp it up. And uh, now... And so, you know, we would we would like to see something in the first half as possible, and that allow us to really start to deploy some capital uh, this year too. Okay, thanks. And it's still those four customers you're talking to, or has has that widened now? You mentioned TMX delay may be accelerating discussions there. No, I think. I think you know the, there's probably four or five customers that we're talking to now. We want to widen that spread, uh, so we want to get down to Houston uh, as soon as possible and really start to market this with those those big integrated refiners and okay, widen our. Yeah, thanks for our taking program. my questions. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Your next question comes from Ben Pham with BMO. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks. I wanted to go back to um, the cap allocation um, topic, and I'm I'm wondering the the increase in the dividend the dividend of six percent um, uh, up up from the last uh, two years was that was that driven at, at all around the TMX delay and that some of these Edmonton tanks might not get sanctioned and and where do you where do you want to sit on the your target payout range? Thanks, Ben. I'll take that. I mean, as you know, uh, we had our board meetings discuss this yesterday. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into um, <laughs> preparing it and coming up with recommendations. So we had the recommendation for the 6% increase well ahead of the TMX news coming out late last week. So absolutely no impact at all uh, on that. Um, you know, we increased the dividend by 6% because you know, we very firmly believe an annual dividend increase is something that makes sense for a business like Gibson, given our stability of cash flows and given the infrastructure growth that we've seen and just the absolute strength in our business. So, you know, that's what the 6% is reflective of. And we think that that also does differentiate us somewhat from our peers. So, uh, you know, in short, it really had nothing to do with the TMX announcement. Um, and I mean, to be candid, the TMX announcement wasn't a complete surprise, I don't think. Uh, to the market a anyways. Uh, with respect to payout ratio range, um, you know, we're comfortable within that 70 to 80%. If you think about it, and it was in our prepared remarks, I mean, we exited last year with an infrastructure business that was over 90% of the total business, you know, with a target leverage range of three to three and a half times and a payout ratio range of 70 to 80. Uh, I think with the stability of our infrastructure business, you know, if anything, that could be considered conservative. So, we're really comfortable anywhere within that 70 to 80 percent. Okay, and and maybe on, on the the share share buybacks. I think most most folks know the some of the benefits from that. But is there is there anything like on on the negative ledger that you you consider you you run through that um, allocation process? Uh, I mean, the only very very modest negative, and I think it's far uh, outweighed by the benefits, would be just reduction in liquidity where. You know, if anything, we'd like to see a bit more liquidity in our stock. But, you know, absent that, I struggle with uh, any real negatives with a buyback. You know, what, what I like is that in a period when growth capital is perhaps a bit lighter than it has been historically, you know, it allows us an avenue to remain very disciplined as we deploy that capital. You know, it's efficient means, it's, uh, it's economic, um, and it returns capital to shareholders. So, um, you know, the only very, very modest negative, which, again, I would think is far outweighed by the positives, would be, you know, slight reduction in liquidity. And, again, that's okay. on the margin. Okay, that, that, that's great. Maybe one, one more from me is um, how, how should we think about the, the tank guidance now? Is that, is that maybe somewhat irrelevant at this point and that maybe, maybe you're moving more towards CapEx deployment, you know, you mentioned the biofuels, one to one and a half tanks, DRU is probably two tanks. Like, is that, is that more relevant messaging now than just, just saying two to four tanks a year? You know, um, we haven't really changed our official guidance. You know, we didn't lower it down to one to two tanks a year, but as I look forward, 
you know, we're gonna we're we're gonna build out our Edmonton terminal uh, and build out that footprint there over the next several years, with or without TMX. Uh, with another three or four tanks. Um, so I would say we're on that that the lower end of one to two right now, uh, without TMX moving forward. Uh, but it's still around Edmonton. Uh, and I would say the majority of our capital is probably going to be in the DRU and energy transition moving forward. Okay. So, so you, to clarify, so you, you, you view more of, uh, the DRU and biofuels or anything else that's, that's on top of that, the tanks. And that's how you get to that 150 million CapEx. Uh, yes. Well, as far as this year, right. Uh, and I said, you know, we hope to get back to that 300 a year again, uh, then, uh, with what we're chasing. So. Okay, understood. Okay, thank you. Your next question comes from Robert Cotillier with CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. You've answered uh, most of my questions, but I just wanted to follow up on the uh, M&A here. Uh, is there any size of M&A that you, you view as a, being in the sweet spot, and um, under what circumstances would it make sense to issue shares for M&A? Wow. Oh. So size, I mean, you know, we're 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 pretty small, uh, so uh, that does limit our size of M and A, uh, Robert, uh, being a, a five five billion dollar enterprise value. Uh, uh, I would say, you know, we're we're not absolutely limited on size, but you know, we are. There are some certain sweet spots. I'll let uh, Sean really kind of talk about the uh, issuance, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly, Rob, it, it would need to be an accretive transaction, you know, to issue shares. I think, you know, there is the size question is a good one. And there are sizes that certainly would, you know, necessitate potentially the issuance of equity. I mean, obviously, that's something we'd like to avoid. We are uh, we're looking to buy back shares, not issue shares. Um, you know, so it would be somewhat counter to that. But again, if an opportunity presented itself and it necessitated that, that that's certainly a possibility. I mean, to the extent we needed equity capital, though, there's other avenues that that can be achieved. Uh, if we had a transaction that was of a size that it did require equity, we could bring in an equity partner. We could bring it in at the asset level. There's a numerous different avenues we could do or execute on, you know, outside of a simple issuance of shares to the to the extent that was required. But I mean, just at very base principles, it would absolutely need to be accretive. Uh, for you, Stephen, to consider issuing equity. Right. So not a preference, but uh, not necessarily a limiting factor either. Uh, no, I mean, I think it'd be foolish to have it be an absolute limiting factor to the extent that we had an opportunity that was so absolutely strategic to the company. Um, you know, it's definitely something that we would need to consider. Yeah. Uh, just a couple follow-up finance questions, more housekeeping related, but um, you know, the lease payments have come down recently. Um, so are, are we now seeing the uh, really the run rate level of uh, lease payments you would expect if you right-sized uh, uh, the rail fleet? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably a pretty safe assumption. And then the last one is on uh, just working capital. Obviously, as you know, commodity prices increase, um, the working capital requirements for the marketing business go up uh, for the same level of activity. Um, so how are you viewing the working capital uh, investment you're making in marketing? Or, or do they have access to the funds they need, or is the higher price um, going to limit activity at all? Uh, you, you know, what I would say is, I mean, they do have access to the funds that they need. I mean, we still have ample liquidity um, to support that business. So there's no limiting factor there. But I mean, at the same time, it's something that we actively monitor. And as the marketing business executes on their strategies, you know, it's definitely a criteria that they utilize in, you know, making the decision about whether or not they execute certain items. So they absolutely have access to the liquidity and the working capital. But at the same time, it's not just a, a blanket amount that they can access um, you know, at any point, it is part of the decision-making criteria for them when they actually look to execute on transactions. Yeah, that, that's good color. Thanks very much. 
And, and then, Rob, to go back to your lease question, sir, I was just looking at it. You know, if anything, I'd say, you know, we would expect leases, to, they could even go down probably slightly from where they are today, just looking at our forecast. So, you know, run rate right now is probably not terrible, but, you know, forecast would be they could potentially even go down slightly more. Okay, thank you very much. Your next question comes from Andrew Kusky with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. I guess the first question is probably for Sean, and it just relates to your, your longer-term contracts on really the infrastructure business. If you could just give us a bit more clarity and, and a view on revenue escalators that you have, uh, really, and the drives of inflation protections within your contracts on a longer-term basis. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Andrew. I think, uh, you know, there's no perfectly generic answer. I think every contract is slightly different, but in general, there are uh, escalator protection or inflation protection within the contracts, um, and it would change by contract by contract. You know, some of them uh, would be more tied to a CPI type thing, and others would just simply be, you know, call it a two or two and a half percent escalator. So, Tough to completely generalize across the portfolio, but you know I would say the vast, vast majority of our contracts do have inflation protection, you know, through some form of escalator. Okay, that's helpful. And then, and then uh, just on wage pressures, I, I think in your financials you're pretty flattish on on wages and benefits uh, year on year. But if you could maybe give us a, a boots on the ground view of just what you're seeing, whether it be for construction projects or just you know, run-of-the-mill operations of the business on, and just what you're seeing on wage pressures. Steve, you want to take that? Uh, you want me to take it? Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen a giant impact on wage pressures yet. Um, but, um, you know, I do believe it's coming. Uh, but, Sean, do you have a better – I know the biggest impact we've kind of seen, even though it's relatively small to everybody else in the industry, is just power cost. Um, but relative to everybody else in the industry, I mean, it was up, power cost last year was up $3 million above budget, so, which, which is not a big thing, but that's probably the largest thing we've seen as a pure impact today. Obviously, steel's up, and that, in, that increases cost of, uh, you know, tanks or any project, but Sean? Yeah, no, I mean, we, we just haven't seen, and I think Steve hit it on the nose, certainly relative to others, I mean, just it's not a huge factor for us if you look across our business. I mean, we're not we're not incredibly labor intensive, you know. Even on the steel side, you know, the extent we execute on a project, we we basically order the steel once we sanction the project. So that that's built into the economics, you know. And as Steve said, sort of the biggest uh, unknown going into the year would be the power side, which again, in totality for us, is not not all that material, especially relative to. Um, you know, some of the inflationary pressures that some of our peers may or may not see. That, that, that's helpful color and context. And then maybe if I can just sneak in one final one, and it, it relates to the power side of things. And you've talked in past calls about you know, doing some solar uh, at various parts of the portfolio. That would obviously benefit, you know, the power side, but also, you know, tick the ESG box to a certain degree, um, and then from a Canada standpoint, you know, should it be in Canada, maybe generate offsets, I guess. How do you sort of, sort of think about the overall management of that side of the business? Is it as multifaceted as the impact it has for Gibson? So, you know, we, we took a hard look at that in last year. Um, and it's hard to build, you know, economical, uh, small-scale, um, you know, solar power units. So that is definitely something that uh, we're going to look at, you know, to meet our goals in 2025 and 2030. And uh, especially with power costs accelerating, I think those those opportunities, either by ourselves or partnerships or just power purchase agreements uh, with renewable diesel, I mean, not with, with renewable power in the future, uh, you know, are going to be available. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from Linda Ezergalis with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering for uh, your renewable diesel opportunities, what ownership range uh, you would consider? 
Uh, do you need to retain a, a majority interest? What would you look for in a partner beyond financing capacity? Um, would it be potentially customers wanting to participate? And how would you kind of mitigate um, any sort of complexity around governance and reporting um, as you as you consider these partnerships versus what um, simple structure you currently have in your reporting and governance? So, you know, we want strategic partners probably more than financial partners, Linda. And so that would either be on the upstream or the downstream side. So, which, which, which is the ag side or, you know, your downstream marketing, uh, the demand side itself. Uh, so, you know, we think, um, we think we have a first mover advantage um, with how far we are along in our engineering. And we think that's probably 12 to 16 months in front of, uh, you know, somebody that's just now starting to look at. And um, so as far as ownership, you know, that really depends just on, you know, how the partnership's set up. You know, we definitely don't have to have a governing, uh, you know, a, a majority ownership in, in what we're doing. But we'd like to have equal share. So as far as pure governance, I mean, Partnerships, we do have partnerships today. Um, I don't see that as an unusual thing, Linda, uh, working within a partnership. You know, we have our DRU, our HERC, our Harvesty West, so we have numerous partnerships today. Um, okay, so, yeah, um, I guess the reporting uh, of that is key and appreciate the simplicity of your reporting. Um, maybe also just as a follow-up, um, as you look to mitigate any sort of inflationary pressures and continue to um, kind of stabilize your, your cash flows and focus on your infrastructure business, might there be more opportunities to revisit some of your tank agreements in terms of potentially duration or reassessing appropriate inflationary um, provisions uh, within those agreements? And uh, maybe we can talk about any sort of uh, contracts coming up for renewal soon, or uh, more broadly, uh, any sort of uh, statistic around your current average weighted uh, duration of agreements on your tanks. Uh, that's a lot of questions there, Linda. Um, let's just talk about, the, we, we've talked about the, I think Sean talked about the inflationary uh, parts of our contract, and those are sufficient to handle um, the inflation that's on right now, Linda. Um, again, you know, the, whether it's CPI or whether it's just a, a general inflation um, uh, percentage that's in the contract, we're not a high energy user uh, at all on the power side. Uh, we don't have mainline pumps. Our pumps just, our pumps feed mainline pumps of Enbridge and TransCanada. Uh, so we just don't have a huge power demand. So inflation doesn't directly impact us as much as other companies. As far as contract life, um, I would say, um, you know, tanks coming up, we, were, we have relatively, you know, we, we talked about that just yesterday, actually. There's relatively few tanks coming up over the next two years uh, for, for renewal. Now, we do start to see tanks. Um, start to come up for, for renewal, you know, 2024 and, and on. But uh, over the next two years, we don't really see hardly any tanks. There's some, but it's relatively small uh, tankage uh, contracts that, that, that are coming to term over the next couple of years. Uh, Sean, do you want to, do you want to add? No, uh, I think you nailed it. And then, I mean, average contract life, I think that was your other question, Linda. I mean, it's probably somewhere in the eight-ish or so range uh, right now. Um, so still fairly long. I think as we've always talked about, I mean, as tanks roll over, you know, given that it's all for operational production, you know, our expectation is that they'll get renewed. And something like that also wouldn't take into account something like uh, the biofuels blending project that we are going to put into service later this year, which, you know, as a reminder, is on a 25-year term. So um, I guess that's all I'd add to that. 
That's helpful. And just as a, a follow-up on uh, some of your M&A um, aspirations commentary, um, as it relates to crude oil, how uh, interested might you be in extending your value chain reach into refined products uh, substantially? And are the opportunities that you're seeing related to uh, assets currently owned by producers in Canada? So as far as refined products goes, you know, I would say we would, we may reach into refined products, but the part of the refined products that we'll reach into is really on the renewable side. Um, not on, you know, not any more than what we already have uh, at, um, at Edmonton. Um, as far as, you know, producer assets are for sale, um, there's always a, there's a couple of assets that we think fit us well. Uh, it's just a matter of is there is are they a willing seller and are the evaluations correct? You know, can we come to a, an adequate evaluation? That's helpful context. Thank you. I'll jump back in the queue. Your next question comes from Patrick Kenny with National Bank. Please go ahead. Oh, hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just a quick follow-up on the DRU Phase 2 opportunity. And I guess this ties into the inflation conversation, but um, can you just speak to any upward pressures there might be uh, out there today on freight rates with the rail companies? And I'm just thinking about that in terms of, you know, at the same time, we could see potentially pipeline tolls come down, I guess, slightly, depending on the outcome of the mainline contracting process. So I'm just curious... If you had an update on the relative economics of railing Drubit to market versus moving um, Dilbit to the Gulf by pipeline. Well, I would say, thank you for the question, Pat. I would say, um, you know, the, probably the biggest impact is just the cost of diesel, uh, so the fuel cost itself. Um, that's probably the only pressure we've seen um, on current rate. Um, I would say, you know, what's kind of the driving force there? I would say just it's condensate pricing is, is what really drives drives the economics around this. Um, and if you look at um, you look at Mont Bellevue C5 or natural gasoline prices, and it's traded, you know, 95 to 100 percent of WTI, and then you got to transport that up here, you know, to to blend in the with our bitumen to make deal bit. So that economics alone really drives us well below what the rates on pipeline are today, Pat. Okay, I appreciate that. Thanks, Steve. Um, and then maybe for Sean, just to go back and clarify on, on the dividend growth outlook. And, you know, I appreciate it's a year-by-year -year decision process here, but would you say that the 6% is um, somewhat of a target here if you can – continue to hit, say, the high end of your fully funded secured growth target, um, if it is that $300 million, and, you know, maybe a more muted 3% dividend growth rate would be um, more tied to, say, like this year, um, having the target at 150 yeah, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't say a couple of things there, Pat. As you know, a first, you know, the dividends a decision uh, of the board that we do annually in February. So uh, that, that's what I'd open with. But I mean, no, I wouldn't say the 6% is necessarily a new normal. I mean, there's going to be a lot of factors that go into it. And, you know, those are a couple of them. You know, how has our infrastructure grown in the previous year? Um, you know, we felt the 6% made sense. Uh, given a number of factors, but also a big one being that, you know, our infrastructure has grown 17% uh, on a CAGR basis over the last five, and our dividend hasn't grown at that same level. So it made sense to us. Our, you know, infrastructure-only leverage ratios are, you know, certainly well below what the target is. So just a number of factors there. If you look forward, you're absolutely right. I mean, factors that will go into it will be uh, what was our infrastructure growth or what's our prospective infrastructure growth? What does our capital look like? Um, you know, a number of other factors. You know, as you noted, you know, a lighter capital program doesn't necessarily mean dividend growth because our hope is, is that capital program 
uh, will increase the following year. So you probably don't want to underwrite a dividend increase on the back of that. You know, in that basis, as I talked to in one of my earlier responses, we'd probably buy a share buybacks. So uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the new run rate, and a lot of factors will go into, you know, the decision we'll make at this time next year. Okay, that's great. I, I appreciate that additional color. Thanks, Sean. You bet. There are no further questions. I would now like to hand the call back over to Mark. Please go ahead. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for our 2021 fourth quarter and full year conference call. Again, I'd like to note that we've made certain supplementary information available on our website as well as an updated corporate presentation. So please see gibsonenergy.com for those. If you have any further questions, please do reach out to us at investor.relations at gibsonenergy.com. Thank you again, and thanks for your support of Gibson Energy. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.